Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today, I'm delighted to be speaking to you from Chicago, Illinois, with Ali Reza Dostar, Associate Professor in Islamic Studies and the Anthropology of Religion at the University of Chicago, and a man who knows a thing or two about the more recondite sides of Iranian culture and of Islam more generally. Ali Reza, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, you are known for a, a really interesting scholarly output that is very much engaged with, on the one hand, Iranian culture, Iranian thought, and Islamic, modern, more modern Islamic thought more generally, but also engaging with um, a, a very wide and, I would say, powerful range of academic tools from Western academe. So, anthropology, theory, and one output of that has been this this book you've created, The Iranian Metaphysicals, which is a kind of anthropology of modern, what you might call esoteric, maybe, mm-hmm. religious movements in Iran. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk to you about that. But before we do talk about that, it'd be great to set the parameters of some terminology, because I'm sure this is going to come up in the conversation. You talk about three terms of discourse. The unseen which is pretty unproblematic in an Islamic hate context because everyone mm-hmm. kind of knows what that means, but the occult and metaphysics or the metaphysical. Mm-hmm. So what do all these mean? Right. What do they tell us? Right. Well, um, uh, I'll tell you what they mean in, in my book, and uh, I'll preface it by saying that uh, I didn't go into my field site and you know, begin this research saying, these are the three concepts I want to explore. I began doing an exploration with certain questions in mind, and then those concepts I realized are very much operational within that context. People who are engaged with the occult sciences, people who are interested in spiritual experiment, experimentation, um, people who reflect on some of the topics that I was interested in um, use those concepts themselves. And, and part of the work that I do conceptually in the introduction to the book is to discuss those concepts so that I, I kind of... Um, uh, the readers can have an adequate foothold later on when, when those concepts come up in various ways, uh, uh, you know, um, e- either descriptively through, you know, my recounting of what people were telling me or, you know, through direct quotations and so on. So the unseen, as you said, it's pretty unproblematic. It's um, my translation and several other people's translation of ghaib, right, or al-ghaib, the unseen, um, which uh, at face value seems like a rather uncomplicated concept, but once you get into it, 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 you know, the the sort of the complications start to introduce themselves. So in the Quran, we read that uh, the mu'minun, the faithful, uh, are those who believe in the unseen, Mm. right? Uh, What the unseen is, it covers a range, right? God himself is unseen. Heaven and hell currently to to mortals who are living on earth are unseen. Uh, The soul is unseen. The devil is unseen and so on. But then certain other things that are very much human um, you could say um, realities are also unseen, like the future or what people hide in their breasts, their intentions, and so on. And uh, and then we have those things that are we typically associate with magic and sor- sorcery and the esoteric, so like the forces of sorcery or sihr, uh, the jinn, right? These are mm. also typically spoken of as unseen. But then a, a, an, an interesting, for me, an interesting question that came up during the research was when... Uh, Muslims refer to that verse or those verses where belief in the unseen is endorsed or um, 
uh, or required even. Definitional. Definitional, right? It's like, okay, so which one of these is it, right? Do you have to believe in jinn, right? Is that, is that a requirement? Do you have to believe in sorcery? And what does it mean to believe in them if belief is not merely about giving cognitive assent to the existence of something, but also, in a sense, putting your trust in something? When you believe in God, it's not you just say, oh, God exists. It's also God exists and I have a certain kind of relationship with him, right? Mm. Uh, so anyway, that, that whole kind of bag of questions is related to the unseen. The occult more specifically in my book, it has to do with those um, concepts, phenomena, beings, forces that are in some ways captured by the Islamic tradition of the occult sciences. And what that is, is in the Iranian context, it's um, usually called uluma qaribe or uluma khafiye. Right, so ulum gariba or ulum khafiya in Arabic, um, where the so the ulum part is sciences, gariba typically translated as occult, sometimes translated as strange, uh, odd, um, weird, weird. Maybe. Thank you. Mm. Weird is great, and khafiya um, being hidden. Yeah. Right. So the hidden sciences versus the known sciences or the apparent sciences. If physics is an apparent science, it's a manifest science. Um, astrology or you know geomancy are more hidden sciences so that's the occult and then the metaphysical uh, in the specific context that I was examining in late 20th century early 21st century Iran had to do with some of the same types of things that we see uh, described either in terms of unseen or in terms of occult except the tradition through which those concepts were being identified defined or explored was a bit different, right? So, so it's, uh, uh, you know, on the one hand, we can say that uh, the occult and the hidden and the metaphysical may refer to different objects, right? Like um, when people in Iran talk about, say, chakras or mm -hmm. karma, you know, or energies, they tend not to say these are matters of the occult sciences, Right. If somebody mentions them, they, they, they are more likely to say these are metaphysical matters. Right? Whereas if you talk about jinn, it's more likely that they'll talk about jinn in terms of either the unseen or in terms of the occult rather than the metaphysical. Right. That doesn't mean they're necessarily a different kind of thing. It indexes more the sort of framework through which they're approaching those things. Does it index anything like a, a kind of a style? Or a feel, because you know, like for example, if you put on some uh, music, mm -hmm. we can agree it's music. But then you might put on a little metal, mm -hmm. and you might put on some jazz. And I'm going to say, well, that's metal and that's jazz. They're both music. Uh, how can you define to me what's jazz about it? Well, it just sounds like jazz. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. Um, so, like the gin. I mean, maybe part of it. Well, let me ask you this. This is something I wondered about. Is some of the the way that you define these two different flavors? of the occult versus the metaphysical to do with how, it, well, first of all, how Islamic they are, mm -hmm. right? The occult stuff is Islamic and it goes way back. Mm -hmm. It has this long tradition stretching back into the medieval, while the metaphysical stuff, although there's some of the metaphysical stuff seemingly can be the jinn stuff and the, you know, yeah. other things, but it, it is a lot more to do with reception of theosophy and mm -hmm. reception of new age religion yeah, broadly speaking. Yeah. So it's non-Islamic. The so the the question, yeah, the typically I, I approach it historically, right? Mm -hmm. So precisely the way that you just said, um, when people look at some, so so historical, not in, not just in the sense that the object 
right? So again, thinking of energy or chakras or whatever, that those concepts themselves have emerged later in in a certain kind of um, epistemic context, right? So in, a, in particular systems of knowledge and spirituality like theosophy, right, being a mid 19th century or so European movement. Um, not just that, but also in the sense of um, uh, the whole system of thought itself, right? So not just the specific concepts, but the system of thought that is associated with it, right? So um, uh, when people say X or Y or Z as a metaphysical concept, they tend to be thinking in terms that have been made popular or have been made thinkable through theosophy, through spiritualism, um, and through a number of other, you know, you could talk about later developments like Ekankar or like transcendental meditation or like Scientology and so on, right? Um, that said, the self-articulation of these, um, of folks who, let's say, speak in metaphysical terms is not necessarily historical. But Their self-articulation tends to be something else. It's scientific, right? They'll say, this is, there's a science but through which we can approach these phenomena, and that science uh, in some ways is very much like the sciences that are familiar to us, the natural sciences. In some other ways, it's actually superior to those sciences because a number of things, because its objects are superior or because its approach and its methods are superior because it does not eschew the spiritual because it unites those two things. It doesn't mm. do this thing where natural scientists do where they kind of naively exclude a whole, a whole realm, right? Um, now, there's something significant uh, in my mind about uh, the way that uh, metaphysical gestures towards the scientific in a way that the occult does not, right? Which is that the way the occult sciences are typically articulated is uh, very much embedded within the Islamic tradition. You already mentioned this, right? Even though it's very problematic within the Islamic tradition, there are folks who say this is dangerous or it's haram. It's seher, it's not seher, all yeah, that stuff. All of that stuff, um, even though that stuff is there, nobody will come out and say, these are just scientific matters. They have nothing to do with Islam. With They have nothing to do with religion, right? right. Whereas people who talk about metaphysic, the metaphysical questions um, or metaphysical topics, they will say, uh, sometimes they'll say explicitly, these are not matters of religion. These are matters of science. And of course, I situate this specifically in late 20th century, early 21st century Iran. And the reason for that is when some of my own interlocutors were saying, okay, like, you know, there was this one seminar I attended, which was... Um, which very much grew out of a theosophical tradition. I mean, the first class, the teacher showed us pictures of Madame Blavatsky and, and so on. He said in the very first session, what I'm teaching you is metaphysics, it's a science, it's not about religion. And why that's important coming out of Tehran in the early 21st century is that what he wanted to ward off was a suspicion that he's teaching some system that's alternative to Islam, right? Which he was doing. Right. Which he was he was proposing a certain kind of spiritual method and, and, and practice, which was alternative to the kinds of spiritual practices that are more traditionally recognized as Islamic, right? And that was precisely what he was afraid of. On the other hand, by positioning this as scientific, what he enabled was for Muslim practitioners, self-consciously Muslim practitioners, to also participate and not feel so anxious that what they're doing might be, uh, you know, iffy from, from mm. an Islamic standpoint. So that's really interesting because as someone who's much more familiar with, with things like theosophy, stuff that originates in America and Europe and spreads all over the world, what is often called occultism, 
in the study of Western esotericism, partly because these people called themselves occultists, yeah. right? So the, the Theosophical Society said we what we do is occultism. They also said what we do is science. Mm -hmm. And then on the more, um, what you might call the more, the less populist, more hardcore style of occultism, as represented by Aleister Crowley, he's also defining as what he does as the aims of religion, the method of science. Mm -hmm. So um, epistemically, we're kind of uh, agnostic about everything. We're actually like radical skeptics, mm -hmm. but we do rituals and stuff. And what we're trying to attain to is these mystical states, mm -hmm. redefine it through a sort of perhaps materialist, perhaps not, we don't know, um, metaphysics where gods don't exist or they do, it doesn't matter. So there's that kind of occultism. Yeah. And it seems to me that that must have had a big influence on this approach within Iran, but the uses to which the claim to scientificness are being put are very different in Iran. That's right. So the claim to scientificness in the sort of late 19th century, early 20th century European diaspora sphere was very much a claim to take us seriously, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, this isn't mumbo jumbo. It's, it's serious thinking people should take this seriously. And this is different. This is don't be scared of us or don't persecute us or don't shut us down. Yeah. And if you're a Muslim, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't something haram. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that's very much there in the late 20th century. If you go a little bit further back, then you see a different thing. So, okay. Which is what? Uh, so early 20th century, you have uh, spiritists right. in Iran, right? So the spiritist society, which was founded by Khalil Khan Sarafi, he was a, a physician in the Qajar court. He was sent to Paris to study medicine. After he studied medicine in Iran itself, um, he learned spiritism in France. He studied with the neurologist who worked with Charcot uh, for a while towards the end of his life. This was when Khalil Khan Sarafi was there. And he himself, Sarafi himself, thought of his practice as a kind of psychiatry. So he defined himself as a psychiatrist, but also as a scientist of the soul which is what a psychiatrist is, right, and a psychologist. Yeah. But um, he, when he came back to Iran, first he became uh, the mayor, uh, so in the uh, post-constitutional period, so after the Constitutional Revolution, this is 1906 or so, he became the first post-constitutional mayor and around of the Tehran. Of Tehran. Wow. Of Tehran. And then in the 1920s, he founds officially a, what he calls uh, which means the Society of Experimental Spirit Science. Right? And at that time, before the term or psychology or psychiatry has been uh, explicitly established, before that's been established, to say right? you can already see it in Arabic, right? Yeah. That is what psychology was in, in, in the philosophical mm -hmm. sense. right? So, so he was a spiritist, very much in the Kardekist tradition, and um, and he and and his um, his colleagues they thought of their practice very much as scientific, but uh, but they also thought of their practice as religious. So uh, he writes um, in the mid I think in like in the twenties or so, uh, or maybe a little bit later. He writes about how spiritism makes possible a kind of morality that is not based on tradition, is not based on received ideas, which could be superstitious. And mind you, if you think about his background in relation to the Constitutional Revolution, you know, in the, as an elite person in the Qajar court, he's a reformist, right? He's a, he's a modernizer. So as a modernizer, he's working against the, the Islamic tradition in some ways, uh, or sometimes very directly. 
So he's saying that the morality and the ethics that spiritism enables is not one that's received uh, through tradition and, and, and imitation and so on, but rather it's through scientific testing. And what is that scientific testing? It's essentially contact with the souls of the dead who have lived lives on earth. They've tried things out. And now that they're in some kind of in-between stage before being reincarnated, they can give us information about what they did right or wrong. And they're going to be reincarnated. And they, they're going to be reincarnated. Right. Yeah. So. And unless they reach a stage where they're perfect enough that they can then okay. leave. Yeah. So they're part of that sort of like occultist metempsychotic synthesis. Yeah. General. It's a bit vague, yeah. but the, the idea is, you know, it's a little sprinkling of Buddhism. You can maybe escape the yeah. thing if you. Which was very much a Kardec's thing. I mean, yeah. with, with, with Kardec and I think his followers, what's interesting is you have much more of an explicit and acknowledged Catholic connection. Whereas with the Iranian spiritists, they're, at least the first generation, is a little bit more wary about integrating Islam. Later on, there are, there are other spiritists who take on certain kinds of Sufi influences or, or acknowledge their, their debt to Sufism. Or they're, they're, they start out as Sufis and then they take on certain dimensions of spiritism. Some of them become hypnotists, right? So hypnotism becomes a part of Sufi practice, um, you know, among a bunch of these Iranians. And you know, so if you if you look at the, there's this one Sufi lineage that actually has lodges in the United States, um, uh, Angha. So Ali Angha, I think. Well, no, so was it something Angha was the first one, and then there's Sadr Angha and Ali Angha. I'll remember their name, but there there were new branch or a new lineage of Sufism that at their very foundation were connected to the Anjuman Amara Faturwa Tajrabati. Right. They were, they, some of them were, the, the founder was participating in some of these spiritist seances. Brilliant. A confluence of two traditions that I've never, has never been on my radar before. And it's not unique. So you look at Turkey, right? So uh, Turkey around the, um, you know, the, the, towards the end of the Ottoman Empire, there are people who have now written about the, the sort of spiritualist and uh, Sufi synthesis in Turkey, and you see it in, e in Egypt, so... This I have read a little bit about. Yeah, yeah, yeah in, in Egypt, so, uh, you know, there's that tafsir um, who's written by an, by an actual avowed spiritualist. I mean, the differences between these is some, are, sometimes has to do with where they are getting their spiritualism or spiritism from. Is it English spiritualism or is it French spiritism and so on? Yeah, yeah. with all the, the ideological um, and theoretical differences that that implies. And maybe as a, a consumer in a, um, for a non-native speaking consumer, you might not even be familiar with all the ideological yeah. differences and, and just kind of conflate stuff. and Totally, yeah. So this is a really, really interesting chapter in the modern history of ideas that has been almost forgotten. Mm -hmm. The fact that spiritism, spiritualism, was incredibly widespread, um, incredibly powerful socially. You know, we have to, if we're looking at things like the spread of women's suffrage, the, mm -hmm. the adoption of birth control, mm -hmm. all these sorts of things are spread via mediums, mm -hmm. uh, among other yeah. groups. But also quite elite actually mm -hmm. not necessarily elite. it's not like you know a kind of closed occult order it's it's very popular but it's also a lot of very elite intellectuals are drawn to it and practice it and mm -hmm. are investigating it and yeah. stuff yeah and so that it's in a way it's a you, it, from a history of science perspective you could certainly approach the history of spirit spiritism spiritualism you know mm -hmm. you might say it's a blind, it's a dead end it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a profitable right. scientific uh, alley to go down. All his practitioners think it is. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. And this is, I mean, it, it touches on a fundamental theme in my book, which is that spiritual experimentation and occult experimentation should not just be seen as some kind of marginal whack set of practices and ideas that um, normative or mainstream Islamic Iranian thought set itself against, right? That that's the wrong way of looking at things. The fact that people have tended to ignore those spiritual and occult practices and ideas has has come from a certain kind of methodological or even conceptual standpoint where they've just been seen as not worthy of attention, right? Whereas when you actually look at the history, you realize that no, it was elites who were doing these things. And, and, and these ideas and practices, including spiritualist ones and spiritist ones and theosophical ones, they have either directly or indirectly played a role in all kinds of what we think of as mainstream notions. Right. So, so one example I have uh, about the 60s, for instance, well, even earlier, so in the 40s, Ayatollah Khomeini writes a book called Kashf al-Asrar, which is very famous. He wrote it as a polemical response to an anti-clerical uh, text uh, called Asrar Hizar Saleh, The Thousand-Year Thousand Year Secrets. And he responded to it, and, and at the very beginning of the book, he talks about uh, proofs for the existence of the soul. And one of the proofs that he draws on is those of uh, mesmerists and, and, and spiritualists and spiritists. And he's drawing for that, he's not directly saying these are spiritist ideas, but he's drawing on the Encyclopedia of the 20th Century by Wajdi, the Egyptian intellectual. Uh, What's his name? Muhammad Farid Wajdi. Wajdi, I guess, in, in the yeah. Egyptian pronunciation, yeah. right? So he, he draws on that. And so you see Khomeini himself, right, when he wants to prove the existence of the soul, in the 1940s, one of the sources he's drawing on is a spiritist source. Later on in the 60s and 70s, you have polemics between a spiritist author and one of the most popular magazines of the time. So by this point, spiritism is no longer just an elite practice, it's become a middle class practice. Yeah. You have people you know, putting saucers, flipping saucers upside down and putting them in trays. I mean, I, in, in the 80s, I had a, an aunt who did, did this and she was communist. You know, right. and, and we were, you know, it was my first time seeing what what a seance was was in when I was in elementary school, and you know, this was during the war with Iraq. This was mm. still being done, but a little bit before this, in the in the late '60s and early '70s, you have a popular magazine promoting this, and then getting into arguments with um, with clerics also writing in magazines at the time and trying, to, you know, clerics who were trying to use the new medium of popular magazines to get to. Uh, to get to the masses, right, and and duking it out, and in their duking it out, I you know, in, in terms of their ideas, you see the clerics also drawing on spiritist ideas, right, like s trying to smash the arguments of this Iranian spiritist, but in doing so, saying that it's not that contact with the souls of the dead or sort of calling forth summoning the souls of the dead is impossible. It's just that you guys can't do it. Right. The European scientists have done it. And they've done it. They've done it well, right? And again, part of that goes back to Muhammad Farid Wajdi and so on, right? Right. Um, and maybe a little bit of um, I hate to say it, but a, a little bit of post-colonial hangover uh -huh. of like those guys do do this stuff really well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Crazy. Even uh, I'm writing. I'm writing something now. Um, I have a draft that I'm hoping to work, to work on, develop a little bit more. Ali Shariati, ideologue, seems often talked about as an ideologue. We of the will. We will oh, I inshallah be devoting. At least one episode to Ali yeah. Shariati. He did seances in the 1960s. He conducted seances. When he was at University of Mashhad, he writes about his seances in uh, some of his memoirs in Dialogues of Solitude, the, what, what, you know, notes that became consolidated at, later on as Dialogues of Solitude. 
So, you know, people that we don't imagine typically as in some way being influenced by these heterodox kind of European spiritual movements, you know, were, were. Thank you for that. We can add that to the dossier of um, incredibly important effects of spiritism and spiritualism that are simply not viewed as worthy of the history books, even though they're blatantly are, yeah. along with Indian independence mm-hmm. and a, bun- a bunch of other stuff that is pr- quite hard to ignore. Um, I feel like there's that, th- that might be seen as one strand of esoteric spirituality coming into Iran from outside, mm-hmm. let's say. Um, another strand, it strikes me, is, well, theosophy, which is linked with spiritualist practices, but it sees itself as something separate, but it's also extremely multifarious. And the question um, I have for you is to what degree does theosophy in Iran count as a foreign import? And to what degree is it, a, is it seen as what it claims to be, which is a homegrown worldwide movement where there's nothing imported. We're just doing our theosophy here in Iran. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, as far as I know, and I can't claim to be an expert on this, uh, Atta Anzali has written a really nice article, uh, an intellectual biography of Hossein Kazimzadeh Iran Shah, who was a journalist and um, a um, nationalist. Uh, he was, spent a, um, a few years in Berlin. Uh, he founded this journal called Iran Shah. Uh, and later on, he spent a considerable amount of time in um, Switzerland, and I believe that's where he died. So he was a he was a theosophist, and um, I'm not sure if he was the first theosophist, but he uh, is certainly a very prolific one. And what he tried to do was to make theosophy homegrown, to connect theosophical ideas to to show their resonance with uh, kind of Iranian uh, and Islamic. Like ideas. Shia, specifically, uh, or? you know, there's even Zoroastrian. You know, there's so there, there so it's yeah. So there's mm. there's the Islamic and there's the it's Sufi. I believe I'm I'm not sh- I don't know um, I don't know if Shiism is as significant to him as Sufism is. Hmm. And uh, later on, you have so he's he's he was a very prominent figure, um, intellectually speaking, because he he ran Iran Shah, the newspaper, uh, the the journal. Later on, you have various permutations of theosophical ideas, but they tend to be a little bit more restrained and um, kind of under the surface. So when I was doing my field work, and this is um, this is mid, you know, this is like two thousand six onwards, uh, there were a number of spiritual groups. The biggest one uh, is called Irfan Halqa. They're still around, right? So I, I wrote a few chapters about them. And uh, you can see certain kinds of strands coming into their work that, that is spiritualist, and you can see certain strands that are theosophical. And they also really insist that th- what they're presenting is an Iranian, it's, an, it's a homegrown um, religious movement. And yet it's a homegrown religious movement that is universal, right? So it's, it's, it comes from Iran, but it doesn't have to be restricted to Iran. You know, there's... Uh, there's an interesting resonance. I don't think they would like this parallel, this connection, but there's an interesting resonance with Baha'ism in the sense of something that comes out of Iran and yet has universalist, uh, universalist claims, right? Mm. Um, one of the names that, they, that the founder, Muhammad Ali Tahiri, he's currently in, in Canada, one of the names that he gives to Irfan al 
which I, I, I translated as cosmic mysticism, Irfanik Keihani, or cosmic mysticism. One of the names that he gives to it is interuniversalism. So it's it's a kind of a universalism that's even more universal than the universalism that we're familiar with. Right, right. meta-universalism. Meta-universalism. Amazing. So. Now, you, since you devote so much attention to these guys, and since it's, I guess, a fairly prominent movement, insofar as these sometimes kind of fringy movements can be prominent, can you give us a kind of snapshot of how you would sum up, how would you sum up this movement to, let's say, a class of undergrads in your survey of Iranian spirituality class? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I would say about them is that they are a therapeutic movement, that they are really, uh, you know, at, at the very first step, they tell you that they have, that they have developed a therapeutic system, and that a lot of people's first impression and first encounter with interuniversalism or with cosmicism is through that therapeutic method, right? They call it pharodarmoni, which is meta-therapy, you know. And then they have another therapeutic practice other than method therapy, which is called, uh, they call simintology, or another term for it is defensive radiation, right? Both of these systems is premised on the idea that universal consciousness, so-called, consists of certain rings that, that connect sort of the, the highest form of consciousness that unites the cosmos with individual human consciousnesses. So our task as humans in order to heal, but also in order to receive bits and pieces of wisdom and knowledge and insight from that universal consciousness is basically to tap into these rings. And this movement helps you do that. It helps you understand those rings, get to know them, but also connect with them. And if you connect with the right ones, then uh, you might start to receive what for all intents and purposes is a kind of revelation, Mm -hmm. but you will also be healed. They compare this, so Muhammad Ali Tahiri in some of his texts compares this to machinery connecting to like the the factory through the internet. It's like, you know, you have you have a you have a device, you know, you want to upload the you want to upgrade the device, you know, you want to upgrade the the OS on your Apple phone, you know, you just connect to the main website and you download the new software. Right. right? You want to get rid of a virus. Similarly, you, you connect to some website and it'll do it for and you. And is he using the, this as the metaphor? That's the metaphor. Yeah, because so. The internet, yeah, is the metaphor. Debugging, you know, mm-hmm. like some of those types of things. But the, the, main, uh, the main idea undergirding all of that is that the world is a kind of a network of consciousness. Everything is conscious. Uh, however, you know, all the little consciousnesses kind of add up to this universal consciousness. And um, uh, all you have to do is be connected in the right way. Right? Okay. That summary, um, uh, we should, I mean, we should get to exorcisms and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because that stuff's really And that's, that's what defense, so defensive radiation slash simontology, that's a kind of exorcism. Right. Yeah. And are you exorcising um, jinns or mm-hmm. other, like, it's like, czar-type spirits? Or are you exorcising, like, negative vibes man? Or is it both together? Like, maybe the jinns are the negative vibes man. The jinns are the negative vibes man. Um, the, so they... They, what they say is that simontology, which means a kind of therapeutic science of psi and ment, right? It's like psyche and mind. And mind. And, those, and they want those two things to be kept apart, right? So psyche is soul, mind is mind, right? Um, those can be penetrated by what they call inorganic viruses. 
inorganic viruses consist of jinn on the one hand and what they call mental bodies on the other hand where mental bodies are these uh, sort of you know you think of kind of the, the different bodies of certain eastern traditions right like yeah. you have all these multiple bodies and, and levels so mental bodies is one of those things and the mental body is the part of you that consists of memories and emotions and so on and at death it detaches itself from your physical body yeah but sometimes because it has attachments that remain to to um, your embodied existence it gets attracted to other people who have who share those same emotional or intellectual or sort of you know attachments of thought and when it does that it it it, it essentially takes the form of an inorganic virus that starts to create disease for that person right. what are those diseases negative vibes right it's like you feel depressed you feel anxious you could feel multiple personality you know you could you could have multiple personality disorders and suicidal ideation whatever you know all of those things but it's important to keep those two for them it's important to keep those two distinct because depending on whether it's a mental body or it's a jinn the the treatment method might be a little bit different also those two beings are up to different tasks like the jinn some of them are guardians they they right. guard nature they guard against abuse and, and so mm. on and so forth but but all of them should be exercised right. because we can't live a healthy existence without without being expunged right of those things now setting aside the technological metaphors which listeners to our podcast are very used to like every era in every era esoteric religious movements tend to grab the the best right current you know like the early spiritualists were all talking about the telegraph that's right the spiritual telegraph that's right fantastic so we're used to that so let's set that aside as just for the moment as window dressing you're talking about a divine or a not divine universal consciousness of which smaller consciousnesses are sparks and there's a lot of detail there but if we just set aside the detail the fact that there's a universal consciousness is the word akl or some equivalent yeah. right aglekol uh, they talk about it also as as the hushmandi which means uh, intelligence right yeah. now what you're saying just if we take take the bare bones there's a universal consciousness smaller consciousnesses are somehow sparks or mm-hmm. parts of that and you can receive revelations because of this connection this could be some form of the- theosophical speculation it could just as easily be Ibn Sina. Neoplatonic. Neoplatonic. Or Ibn Sina mediated even, let's say, Ibn Sina mediated via Mullah Sadra. That's right. Which is it? Or is it both? Or neither? You know, I think it... The the answer is it depends on what people want it to be. So right? it can you you have both options. You have both options. You have both. I mean, uh, I think there have been people who've taken it in multiple directions. So there. So I interviewed people who who looked at cosmic mysticism and explicitly said this is not Islam. In some ways, it encompasses the best of what is Islam, but it's not Islam itself. And then uh, I also read works by people who compared Muhammad Ali Tahiri to Ibn Arabi and who said that in fact you can understand better some of the insights of Tahiri by putting him in conversation with Ibn Arabi. So uh, you know there's a there's a Quran scholar uh, who was very much close to Muhammad Ali Tahiri and 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 um, you know helped develop some of the ideas in causing mysticism who very much puts him within a frame of Islamic tradition. That's why I'm saying it can it can go both ways. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. 
yeah, this, the the idea of these spiritual bodies as well could mm-hmm. go back to Platonism, ancient right. Platonism. Right. It when it, when it comes to, I mean, there, there's an interesting, um, I would say, spectrum or multiplicity along a, a sort of a range of popular practice and elite thought, and it's not a very strict range in the sense that it's very easy to kind of within within a certain let's say class or or, or session or even text that Tahiri himself has written to kind of move between those two ranges right so on the one hand you have this description of jinn or mental bodies and 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 consciousness and so on and you can see these sort of theosophical influences you can see certain kinds of connections to neoplatonism and islamic mysticism and so on and then on the other hand You'll be talking, let's say, about Simontology or you know defensive radiation, and they'll say, "Oh, you know, if you want to properly understand this, you got to watch The Exorcist." I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you about The Exorcist because the ah, the that's that's very interesting. There's the Turkish version of The Exorcist. Have you seen that? No, I don't. Shaitan. So. Oh no, I have not seen it. <laughs> it's like a super low budget scene-for-scene scene remake of The Exorcist, except the priest is an imam. Uh, he reads the Qur'an, obviously. Uh, the, the holy water is, is water from Zamzam, oh, wow. and all this stuff. So yeah. it's still this weird, like, kind of very Christian exorcism scenario, but it's all been Islamified. Right, right, right. Um, right. Please continue with this, talking about the... Um, that you need to watch The Exorcist, though. To you need to watch The stuff. Exorcist and, and more generally uh, movies, horror movies made in Hollywood as idioms uh, for understanding spiritual spiritual therapeutics and for understanding cosmic consciousness, right? I mean, like, they're very fundamentally part of the practice and the theory. So the, the two that I found most repeated were... This was like when I was, again, when I was doing my research in 2008, nine, especially with the Cosmic Mystics, it was The Exorcist and it was Constantine, the one with uh, Keanu Reeves. It was those two. And both of them very much deter- over-determined with kind of uh, Catholic imagery, right? And, and then if you talk to, you know, so I talked to the teacher, they call them masters. I talked to the master uh, who himself was a student of Tahiri. And it's also very democratic, by the way. This is the whole system. You can train if you go through a certain number of semesters of teaching, and then you can yourself become the master, right? So there, mm. there's a kind of a pyramidal structure, but it's not difficult to ascend the ranks. It's not like Freemasonry or anything like right. that. So I talked to him, and I said, you know, why is it that there's there's this great similarity? He said, well, it's because the Catholics and the Christians more broadly, they've just perfected the art of battling demons, right? And and so and they've made all these movies about them. So they they just tend to do it really well, right? That's so interesting. Yeah. And of course, the, there's there's this. Um, I mean, the, I, this takes us a little bit further afield from this, but it, a bit more broadly within the Iranian context of the time. I'm writing about this now for a new book on Satan and the Iranian Revolution. There's this whole milieu where Hollywood movies play a huge role as kind of spiritual diagnostics, in a sense in the sense that if you look at a movie, so on the one hand, you could say, for a cosmic mystic, you watch Constantine, you can understand what's going on in the exorcism that they're gonna do like that evening, right? Like you, you look at the, the, the practice of the exorcism, you can look at the way um, the afflicted person is, uh, you know, is exhibiting symptoms and so on, and you can say, okay, you know, um, I can understand this by parallel with the exorcist, the movie, right? That's one way of looking at it. But then there, it's diagnostic in a different sense, which is 
the very existence of the movie The Exorcist and the kinds of images that you see in it says something about the context in which it was produced, which is the context in which the forces of the dark side, the forces of negative energy are increasingly taking over, where inorganic viruses are permeating in the world. And what they're doing is they're shaping people's minds or they're impressing themselves on people's minds to such an extent that they're, they, they're producing this output in the form of movies. Right. So it's like a sign of the times. It's like a, a way to uh, measure the, where we're at culturally yeah. is the fact that these movies are being produced. It exactly. shows us that the inorganic viruses are everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and they, there's different mani- there's other manifestations of this, like in backmasking, for instance, with heavy metal music or with rock music, right? And then there's ways of countering it, and the way to counter it is to produce your own music. Or there's a little bit of this in cosmic mysticism, uh, but then there's making movies at the level of just Iranian cultural production. There's this whole uh, whole movement. I shouldn't say movement. There's this whole project, partly state funded, to develop what was called spiritual cinema. Or meaning-oriented or spiritual cinema. The biggest budget movie that they made was called Mulke Soleiman, Solomon's Realm. And it, you watch it and you're like, okay, is this an Islamic sort of Lord of the Rings? You know, right. it, it very much is playing with the tropes and with the kind of visual language of... Uh, of Lord of, of the Rings? Of Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. my God. But it's presumably, is it about Solomon? It's about Solomon. And, it's about and the early... Mastering yeah. jinns and yeah. ordering yeah. the temple to be built and all that stuff? Yeah. Satan show, make, uh, makes a showing at the very beginning, and then the jinn kind of come in towards the end in very direct embodied form. Right. Yeah. Amazing. I'm bad that is on the list of, of movies to watch. Um, I can give you, I, I have this, um, I have an ar- article in Jadali, no, sorry, I have an article in Ajem, which is, uh, it's about Iranian Ramadan TV serials of the spiritual genre. So there's that, and then I have a chapter that I'm reworking, but it's about Satan's representation in Iranian TV series and the way that it's in conversation with kind of horror tropes. This um, is an interesting thing. You see this in in the Turkish um, ripoff of, of The Exorcist, Shaitan, yeah. because there is, of course, an Islamic devil figure, mm-hmm. he, but he's just never really appears in that kind of, West European Christian style. He's never got like a cloven, like cloven hooves, and he never looks like the god Pan. He's a completely different dude. But they've just gone for the, kept all the imagery. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't really messed around with the imagery at all in that movie. Although Satan never, to be fair, never appears in The Exorcist in propria persona. But you get the impression this is one of Satan's minions inside this little girl, and it's all about uh, gross out and um, yeah. kind of sexual perversion and this sort of stuff. Yeah. The, the sacraments are, in, in, you know, constantly being sort of um, violated or right, which is right? just not doesn't make sense no. in Islam at all. No, I mean, it, I mean, you, of, of course, you're not supposed to like do mean things to a mushaf of the Quran, but yeah. it's not like that. That whole sacramental way of thinking isn't is right. foreign to Islam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sihr can involve forms of uh, defilement, but we don't tend to think of Satan himself as a defiling figure, like defiling. The Quran say that's I, I don't know of anything like that yeah in fact there's ways I mean I'm, I'm thinking increasingly along these lines now there's ways in which either the figure of Iblis shows up in some parts of the Islamic tradition as a virtuous figure in Sufism there's this revaluing of Iblis in this Suf- so there's definitely Sufism that context. of him as like the tragic lover of God and the perfect monotheist but then there's even in the even in the tradition where he's not kind of recuperated in that way 
there's the, uh, I was just speaking with somebody about this, there's the nasaih or nasihatul iblis, right? The sort of the advice of iblis. There's this one story I was reading, this was in the, um, I believe it was in the Bihar al-Anwar, so Muhammad Paqar Majlisi's um, magisterial compendium of hadiths. This is composed in the 17th century, sorry, in, I think in the early 18th century, late 17th, early 18th mm -hmm. century. And, um, and there's this one hadith I was reading about how Iblis meets Noah, the prophet Noah. And he says, hey, Noah, I owe you something because when you damned, you know, when you cursed your people and God just took them all out with the flood, I basically just had an easy time for a long time. Like, I just didn't have anything to do for a while, right? So he, he kind of got a, got a vacation. So he says, I owe you something. And I'm going to pay you back, right? And Noah's kind of disturbed. He's like, oh, what, what does Iblis want to have with me and so on? And then he says... I'm going to give you some advice. And the advice that he gives them is virtuous advice. It was, I think it was about anger. I don't exactly remember, but like you have to contain your rage and so on and so forth. So you see him, you see Iblis emerging as a mouthpiece for truth, you know, truth speaking. Yeah. And, you know, it's a very much different, just confirming what you're saying, very much different from the figure that we have of Hollywood. As the this prince kind of, of lies. Exactly. Wow. So let's talk about this notion of rationality. I mean, the term rationality is often used as though it's completely self-explanatory and, and we know it's good, we know it's the right way, and we don't need to really try to figure out what it is. But as soon as you start to look at it in, as the rubber meets the road in culture, it becomes incredibly problematic. And you've done some great work trying to disentangle the idea of ideas of rationality of science and, and figure out how they relate to this material you're looking at, which will be practices that many people will look at and say, okay, well, this is, this is superstition, or this is not rational. It's either irrational, or at least it's not yeah. particularly rational, it's irrational. Stuff like these exorcism practices, these um, shooting energy out of your body to create like protection and stuff like this. Please discuss. I'm not expressing myself very well, but but this is this is really really interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, one one of the entry points for me into this project was uh, so I, I studied engineering as an undergraduate, and then I was in Iran looking to do preliminary field work for this project. I'm, you know, this is my first year as a doctoral student, and um, I'm just sitting around with some of my former classmates from Tehran University who were, who at this point had their own firms, you know, they were doing electrical engineering types of projects, computer science types of projects. And um, they start talking about the occult sciences. And it blows my mind, you know, they're saying, you know, they're talking in positive terms about the occult, about how occult sciences are scientific, about how they are scientific in a way that engineering is not, because engineering tends to be an approximation for manipulating the world, whereas these sciences right. are more like physics and they're supposed to explain the world and so on. And this blows my mind because uh, I've never heard this before, and I know I've known these people for you know about a decade at that point. So um, my one of my initial questions for the book was uh, something that other anthropologists had done in other contexts, but it was sort of the starting point for me was how is it that people whose very self-identification in terms of as scientists and as engineers um, and as reasonable people. Um, would appear to preclude the possibility that they would take something like magic and the occult seriously, and yet they're articulating magic and the occult precisely in terms of scientificity and rationality. Right? And um, my conclusion was, and what I, what I do at length in the book, was 
to say that what I found was to say that um, rationality is not just this one thing. Rationality and reason are not these abstract, transcendental positions from which everything outside of themselves is 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 explainable and is uh, measurable. Instead, they are always embedded in some kind of historically developed tradition, and those traditions come about through argument, through disagreement, and yet there is something that makes them coherent individually. And they tend to be not just disembodied forms of abstraction and conceptualization, but they're also tied to ways of organizing the body and training the body, right? So there's a very embodied way of, of disciplining reason and of, of thinking about reason. So in that sense, what the book does is it, it explores different traditions of rationality, different traditions of reasoning. The occult sciences is embedded within multiple traditions of reasoning, including the Islamic theological, reason, you know, kalam, like the tradition of kalam, but also the tradition of falsafa. And then you have the metaphysical kind of tradition of reasoning about matters of energy and healing and, and mental powers and frequencies and so on and so forth. That itself is a sort of a tradition, I'm arguing. And further, these traditions sometimes blend and mix and match in contexts, in specific contexts, in particular ways. Not always completely coherently, but people are creative beings, you know, they, they draw on multiple resources for their thinking. I had examples where uh, there was a preacher in Shiraz who would talk about how um, you know, he would justify the morning practices of chest beating, right, like lamentation in the Shi'i tradition, by saying that scientists have shown that if you beat your chest, that activates the chakras of the chest, right? And that, that has a sort of a certain kind of spiritual therapeutic benefits, right? This was something that's, that a figure like that preacher could say in 2006 and not raise major eyebrows. Whereas a little bit down the road, that became a problematic thing to say because certain critics and conservatives especially started to say, well, the chakra stuff, that's, that's heterodox religious practice. It's not scientific practice. In all these cases, what we see is the development and articulation, but also the challenging and, and kind of um, contestation of different forms of reasoning, different sources for reasoning and for justification, different methods of giving evidence, different styles of reasoning. So when I talk about rationality, I'm talking about constellations of historically developed styles of reasoning, conceptions of evidence, um, affects through which what is considered to be the right form of reasoning are justified or not, right? Like you think about Objectivity, right? We, we tend to think about objectivity as something where, uh, in part, it's about reining in your passions, right? Like, right. You You've know. got a cool, collected, dispassionate view, and you can see what's really going on. Exactly. Yeah. So that's not not affective, right? It's about training the affects in a particular kind of way, right? Yeah. And different modes of reasoning perhaps draw on different kinds of, um, of, of, of affective say, structuring of, of, uh, of argumentation, of thought, of speculation, and so on. Hmm. Now, that being the case, in the let's bring it right up to the modern day, the, the current bleeding edge of uh, Iranian history. We've got a situation where there is the Islamic Republic has gone through various different, well, you might call presidencies, I guess, um, and uh, with, with varying different agendas and stuff. But at the moment, there seems to be something of a kind of crackdown vibe going on from the top. We need to get things under control. The, the overarching ideological stance is, of course, that um, our brand of Shi'i Islam is the best thing, it's, it's correct, and the state has to sort of embody that so that they, you have a, like a kind of perfect fusion of 
that kind of Islam with um, the state and the whole society, but also as spoken by important imams whose word is sort of law. Mm -hmm. And they're going to maybe say different things mm -hmm. over time. So, so it's not a, a kind of totalizing discourse of a one truth that you might expect from, if you're familiar with uh, Christian ideas of a credo, this, this is not that. This is right. an Islamic hate, an Islamic approach to that. But still, there is a kind of totalizing thing going on in Iran. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you have these rather interesting, weird fringe movements, the metaphysicals. Mm -hmm. So what kind of uh, negotiations are, are going on between them society at large, how are they being received outside of their own groups mm -hmm. and stuff, and the state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So the, when I wrote my book, I finish around, uh, so the book was published 2018, and I think the last bit of field work I did would have been like 2015 or so, right? So we're still in the Rouhani presidency, um, and things have changed since then, right? One of the things that at the time um, I was noticing was that uh, well, so the efflorescence, let's say, of a lot of this kind of spiritual experimentation, some of the stuff that you were calling fringe, um, not all of it fringe, mm -hmm. um, uh, you, some of it, I think, quite mainstream, um, there was an efflorescence of this in the Khatami presidency, right? So 97 to 2005. When Ahmadinejad came to power, 2005, you have a crackdown on some of this, but then others... Not so much, right? So he promotes messianism. Messianism, sort of messianic ideas, begin to mix and match with some of these kind of metaphysical forms of thought. So, you know, the Kingdom of Solomon was came out in 2010 or 11. And um, it's the high point of really sort of the Ahmadinejad-style mixture of Islamic messianic thought and commitment with certain sort of occultish and new age-ish types of ideas, right? Mm. So you, that's still going on. But on the, on the other side, a lot of things start to be shut down, right? So the, some of these um, therapeutics, so cosmic mystics, for example, uh, Muhammad Ali Tahadi was arrested uh, around the same time. The group was outlawed. Um, uh, yoga studios, some of them had trouble, right? They had to shut down because yoga was seen as a, as a kind of a, a Trojan horse for you know, Eastern spirituality, right. right? And sometimes they did promote, some of them did promote Eastern spirituality. I mean, I, I took part in some yoga classes where I was told that uh, Khoda, right, God in Persian means Bekhoda, come to yourself, right? Okay. So Khoda and Khoda, right? So, you know, you, you see, you see, it's not that some of these ideas were not there, you know, but, but it's the sense that they are threatening, I think, that mattered. Uh, to, from the state's perspective. So there was a shutdown of some of those things. I think the, what happened after Ahmadinejad was that the Ahmadinejad-style messianism and its kind of weird admixture with New Agey and occultist thought, that also got shut down. I mean, all of that got discredited by some of the conservatives as what they call deviant, a deviant movement, a deviant spirituality, right? Mm. Um, now, what does, that, what does that say about the current moment you know, I mean, in the Rouhani presidency, you have a little bit more of an opening again of, uh, you know, a little bit more of a free hand for some of these groups to promote their ideas and so on. But it tends to be more on the down low. I think w where there's probably been the least suppression has been in the field of 
success literature, right? Like prosperity literature, that kind of thing. So you go to bookstores in Iran, you will still find uh, new editions of Rhonda Burns' The Secret. You know, that's that's always going to be you know uh, on sale. You're going to find books of similar kind of character that are pop psychological and blend in conceptions of psychology with, say, ideas about quantum physics. Yep. You know, that sort of thing. Deepak Chopra territory. Deepak Chopra is going to be, you know, you're going to find Deepak Chopra and so on. Uh, and then you're going to find people who try to establish some kind of bridge between some of those ideas and Islamic ideas, right? That you're was my f- next question, actually. Yeah. You're going to find that kind of thing, too. What you're going to find less of, at least in the overt sort of sphere, is books that are explicitly teaching alternative forms of spirituality, right? When I was in Iran, 2008, you could still find books by Osho in the bookstores. You could find books by Carlos Castaneda. You can't do that anymore. You can't find those anymore. So that's one transformation that has happened. I think, though, that even though this is the case, it doesn't mean that these things have completely evaporated, right? They're still under the surface. The alternative spirituality is there. And of course, the occult sciences, we talk less about that. Like the, the, the sort of traditional Islamic occult sciences, they're still all over the place. And then you have the sort of the kind of borderline heterodox from the perspective of orthodox uh, Shiism, you have the borderline folks who are doing the shamanistic kinds of um, exorcisms or gin catching and, and uh, you know, sorcery and uh, talisman making and, and all that stuff. So all of that is still very much there. It's not just not formally part of official discourse. But every once in a while you'll hear, I don't know, ex-football player consulted you know, a talisman maker to to be able to succeed, you know, in his in right. his in his game or whatever. Mm. Well, Ali Reza, thank you so much for painting a an evocative and fascinating picture of, of some of the stuff that's going on in Iran at the moment in the esoteric realm. Some of it isn't esoteric, some of it's mainstream. But it's as always, you know, our esoteric stuff that we study is always in dialogue with uh, dominant viewpoints and stuff like this. And I know that Khomeini himself I believe, was uh, quite skilled in the old uh, occult sciences to some degree, the more traditional ones, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. all the way down to the guy on the corner who can, I don't know, sell you a talisman, and maybe it's a quite traditional talisman, but maybe there's like he has a crystal or something to give right. it a little modern uh, spiritual vibe or something. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you. And stay esoteric.